Welcome to Capital Class. I'm Adam Geary. We founded Capital Class to share candid conversations with market-leading businesses while humanizing the journey of constructing an enterprise. The global education market is a $2 trillion industry. Yet, when I introduce myself at a dinner or a cocktail party, remember those? I'm often on the receiving end of a blank stare when I describe the education industry. What is the business of education? It's everything you can imagine. Books, buses, tablets, food, curriculum, transportation, and much more. All are a part of a business of creating an excellent education environment. Globally, EdTech and innovation has never been more exciting. Learners, pre-K through workforce have never been more empowered. And companies have never had greater access to capital and markets. In today's class, we ask the question, what are the distinct differences between the developed markets and emerging markets in education? Why is the world segmented by different versions of English? How do global learners access education beyond the classroom? And how do different parts of the world build education products and companies? To answer these questions, we are joined by David Link, accomplished entrepreneur and managing director of EduGrowth, Australia's leading organization to advance education and technology sectors both domestically and abroad. We pose these questions and many more in today's episode of Capital Class. We hope you enjoy. David. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's a pleasure. David, for many of our listeners, the education market lives in Silicon Valley in New York. And as an accomplished global entrepreneur, how uniquely different is the global technology market? I I think that for education technology, I think that the thing that's really interesting and from my view, right, having worked with US-based edtech companies and work with European companies and lots of Australian companies is that the, the I, I sort of talk about two markets. One is the, the um, core market for an edtech company and two is a supplementary market. So I, I doubt very much that there are many non... So let me put it another way. I doubt that there are very many US companies that have a core market as Australia as being one of them or Asia being one of them. But remember... I think it's something like about three-fifths of the world's population live in Asia. So it's an enormous market that are in desperate need of education. So um, I think I think that there's a bit more of a international uh, need to think about your core market and supplementary markets from an edtech perspective. And in simple terms, you have to, to be successful in the Australian edtech ecosystem, you need to be thinking about international markets because it's not a big enough market to be successful on its own. You have to be exporting. So I think that there's a desire immediately to start thinking across the border and across the horizon and go, well, how do I go and connect into new markets? That's fascinating. So as an edtech company that starts in Australia, there's almost already a plan. The growth plan is beyond Australia. I think the answer is yes, but with one caveat. So there are two types of edtech companies in Australia, in my view. One is what we might traditionally think of as a startup or something that's an entity that's on a hyper growth. And then those companies are definitely looking offshore. They are definitely thinking about an export opportunity. They are definitely thinking about how do I impact learners around the world. The other group in there are entities that are really what I might refer to as small businesses. So they are 
maybe they might be a teacher, they might be an academic, they might be an educator who's got a great idea, goes and commercialise it, but never really wants to do anything more than a couple of million dollars in revenue. And so therefore they're focused very much on the Australian market. But ultimately as a general as a generalisation, I would say Australian edtech entrepreneurs are immediately thinking about where else can I sell into, where else can I deploy into. Is there an eagerness in the Australian market for innovation at, at the school level? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there, there is this um, idea of schools, and if we think specifically about K-12 schools as, as the basis, and we'll talk a little bit about universities and um, vocational training in a minute, but there is a definitely desire for schools to be innovative and really around focusing on improving student outcomes and learning outcomes. And that innovation, we, we use the term agency. We want schools to have agency over the innovation that um, is happening in their environment, not just have it thrust upon them. So we want them to be part of the innovation ecosystem. We want them to co-design. We want them to iterate. We want them to work with, with uh, edtech entrepreneurs <laughs> to make sure that their product that's being produced is connected to their needs. Specifically in the university and the TAFE, or what we call TAFE in this country, vocational training, almost all of them have some sort of accelerator where they're trying to drive innovation. Some of those universities actually have innovation hubs specifically around education, focused on teaching and learning um, advancement and ensuring that they're relevant to, to the learner all the time. So I think that they're an incredible tenant of a, maybe a tripod, right? The educators themselves have to be part of that ecosystem to make it most successful. That's incredible. You know, the piece that I find so fascinating about this item is many times the innovation conversation comes at odds with the establishment. And what it sounds like, at least from what you're describing in the Australian market, that they're actually in concert together. And that's that's quite unique, at least in my experience. I I think I, I would agree that there is a desire to work closely together. Whether we're fully there yet or not, I'm, I'm sure that there are areas <laughs> that we can improve on. So I don't want listeners to go away thinking, oh, well, you know, Australia's worked it out fully and how educators can connect into the innovation ecosystem. I think we still have the desire there to, to con- connect into them. But that's a really important point for me to make too around the Australian edtech ecosystem is very much focused on a B2B business model. And I mention that because what that means to me is that they are interested in improving learning through the established systems, the schools, the universities, and the vocational trainers. They're not looking at bypassing them. They're not saying, hey, schools are broken. I'm going to go and educate my child outside of that system. They're not saying universities are, well, some are, I'm sure. They're not saying universities are broken. I'm going to bypass them. They're actually saying, how do I improve the learning outcomes and the efficiency and the capability of the existing institution? And the the best statistic for that is 71% of all of Australia's edtech companies are focused on B2B sales. So they're looking at improving the system, not bypassing the system, which means that's that's why, coming back to your point, that's why the educators are important to that thing because they're they're trying to produce tools and services and products for them, not to bypass them. I wonder what that must experience be like for the parent and for the educator, right? That that those teams are actually... There is cohesion here, right? That that it's not a either or. And I do we do see a lot of that in the American market. It is the system's broken. There's this external 
audience and group that are doing what they can. And that's this innovation system. And you're either on one of those two teams. You're really not in the middle. That's it's, it's a totally different market. And you would know, especially with your experience in the American market. Yeah. So I, I think what it's, I, I, I guess I'm very biased, right? So every human has biases. I'm very biased to the fact that we should be supporting teachers. We should be supporting educators. These are, you know, these should be the highest ranked professionals in our country. That, so I'm very biased there which means sure. I'm very much on the same platform that I think we should be improving their lives. We shouldn't be improving them because if the educator is more efficient, more successful, then the students in their classrooms are more efficient and more successful. So I think that that's um, incredibly important. So I think that the, the reality is, is that educators, in my opinion, are driven by altruism. I think ed tech entrepreneurs are too, right? You have to, you don't wake up in the morning. Let me try and preface this. Successful edtech entrepreneurs don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm going to make a, a whole lot of money by building an edtech company because there's other ways to build tech companies to make a lot of things. You, you, you wake up desiring to improve something, change something, make a difference. And that's in, innate and inherent in educators too, I think. I think there's a lot of similarities between the inbuilt human desire that educators have, the inbuilt human desire that edtech entrepreneurs have too. And there's a synergy there. And we can use it to our advantage. It's a fascinating observation, especially as a former educator. I, I can completely align with that. That you certainly don't go into the profession with the explan with the game plan of wealth, right? Something drags you. Absolutely. It's, there's almost an entertainment factor. At least for me, it was. You know, it was exciting. It was forty-five minute. I had seventh graders, right? Forty-five minute uh, audiences to teach history. And, you know, you leave it all on the field some days and it's definitely got its moments, but it's, it's, you're right. You could, as an ed tech entrepreneur, go build something a lot, a lot easier to scale with fewer regulatory uh, challenges with a clearly defined market. I mean, when you look at the size of investment across the kind of entire universe that is uh, fin and, and regular kind of traditional investing, ed tech market is quite small. Right? It's, it's only now starting to become a thing. So that's, that's incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and going back to your point around the need to involve educators in the innovation cycle, it's really important for your listeners to know something around the Australian education landscape a little bit as well. So there are, um, I, I assume your listeners across all sort of continual learning, K-12, higher ed, right. um, the vocational. So in simple terms, there are 9,500 K-12 schools across this country. Uh, 7,000 of them are government schools, which means they're essentially, you know, public institutions. The remaining 2,500 are independent schools. Um, in the university space, there are 39 Australian, sorry, 40 Australian universities, 39 of them are public institutions, one is private. So it's heavily driven by government funding to drive the education sector. So if your product is to bypass that because you think you can do it better in the private sector, you're reducing your market, right? You're just reducing the capacity for you to sell. doesn't mean you can't, of course you can be successful. It's just a different business model. And by having a relationship with existing institutions, I think it's true around every tech ecosystem that I've seen around the world, including excluding some parts of Asia, which I'll talk about in a minute, remind me. But 
I think predominantly in the Australian market, you're you're talking about governments are the major funders, so therefore connecting with uh, existing institutions allows you to access that government funding. So you've worked around the world, right? I think that's something we, we must hit on here. How similar, I mean, market to market, and I'm sure you could go very granular here, but just as a global education market, are there similarities? Yeah, so I think as a as a very broad statement for your listeners for English-speaking markets, there are two very distinct markets that are very separate. So one is a American English market and the other one is a British English market. And typically, if you're following a British English British English structure, you don't really care for American English in there. So, example, Zs in words and um, um, spelling of words or, or grammar and things like that. So, if you're building a product that has, you know, the broad context of having an English speaking product, um, an English sorry, British English or an American English, there that's the biggest divide. I think the other thing, there's another divide there, and that is whether it's a government-driven, so publicly funded system or it's a privately funded system. So in in parts of the world, emerging markets, and an example might be India as an example. In emerging markets, what you'll find is that those markets are about bypassing the government system because of, you know, its, its general comment being that it's a perceived lack of quality within those programs. So Coming back to your question, what's the difference in the market? I think there are two big divides, whether or not you're British English or American English, and then secondly, whether you're supporting the system or bypassing the system. What has been your experience in the Asian market, right? It's it's spoken about at conferences and almost in some, I don't want to say pejorative terms, but it's just always size, right? It's all you ever, it's a huge market. If you're not there, you're you're missing out. And Certainly, there's many people in the country of China. Say Asia as a total is a, is a ginormous pop, population of people. But I mean, that's also a very. Uh, it, I think it's spoken about it very homogeneously, but it's it's also very unique countries, all of which take a different approach. Is in my limited exposure to the education market. Yeah, so you, you are right. They're huge. You know, when you start thinking about China at about, I'm going to, I think it's about 1.5, 1.6 billion people. Then you start thinking about India at a sort of 1.3, 1.4 billion people. But then you start thinking about places like Indonesia at about four or 500 million people or the Philippines that are at a couple of hundred million people. These are really big markets. As a general rule in Asia, my view is that most countries that can access have a desire to teach in English at some point in time. You know, Malaysia, Thailand have these policies. They want to be teaching in English at some point in time. And these these are long-term trends. So I think typically in Asia, I, I think that predominant business model for edtech companies tends to be B2C. So it's an enrichment market or it's a test prep market, right? Remembering, if you let's just talk a little bit about India for a moment as well. And it's important to for our listeners to think about the the macro number can be deceiving and it's the old joke of how do you eat an elephant well you've got to eat it one bite at a time and it's a little bit the same when you start thinking about india right like india is a great example one point let's go with 1.4 billion i think we'll go I'm with not that counting. 1.4 billion people so there are one point there were 1.3 million k-12 schools in india 
And then when you look at it wow. and you go, okay, well, a million of them are got fully government funded and students, the funding from the government is around 50 to 100 US dollars per student per year. So if you've got your EdTech product that's selling for $12.50 per student per year, yeah, well, guess what? That You've just taken up 25% of their budget and they're not going to buy it or 12% of their budget or whatever it might be. So you've got to make sure that your product price to fit the market. So then you take these 1.3 million schools, you say, well, okay, I can't really access a million of them. Then I've got three or 400,000 left. Well, there's going to be an elite group of schools which are accessible and then there's going to be another group of schools that have got the capacity to buy a product. There's another group of schools that may not, they're what might be called a low-fee private school. So you've got to really understand the market you're going to try and sell to. And that's why there's this B2C play that you're seeing some of the biggest edtech companies in the world emerging, China, India, they're actually B2C plays. And I talked very briefly about the test prep market. So you've got to remember that there is a huge, education is incredibly um, revered in, in many of these markets. China, India as great examples. The family unit cared deeply about the school that you go to, the grades that you get, because they see it as the way to transform lives by getting you a great education. So that's a great way to tap into the market, which is why you see things like test prep products, which are really about can you pass the test at the end of year six? Can you pass the test to get into the best English school? Uh, Can you pass the test to get into the best university? And all of these things all the way along. So that's why parents are a source of income because they will prioritise spending in the family to ensure that their child um, gets to the school and gets the best possible outcomes. It's so interesting the way that the markets are segmented, right? We, the especially as you brought up, and that there is a growing number that is B two C, right? D two C, I should say, right? Almost where parents are buying these services, parents are buying the American, you know, an American educator who in nights and nights and weekends tutors their child um, in on English topics not even necessarily as an English teacher, and there's a huge demand for that. Absolutely, because it comes back to this argument of competitiveness, right? I think education around the world is sort of, if it's not already, it will be or should be, right? Um, Focused on employment outcomes, focused on student outcomes, really connected to their employment. And, you know, there's this debate, that the rest of the world hears about the US market all the time, which is about the student debt crisis, right? This idea that student debt in North America is going to surpass housing debt or health debt and all of these sorts of other things. And there is no doubt that the rest of the world's looking at it and saying, well, okay, if we're if we're expecting students to spend one, two hundred thousand dollars to get a university degree and then they can't find a job, well, what does that mean? Has the university de- failed is the degree being good and that is definitely the case in in the asian markets right in my view they are very much about preparing their their child for whatever the future brings and so if if they think they can happen through the education system and i'll support it if not they'll bypass it a great example of it and my data is a bit old but at some period of time south korea was the highest spend of gdp on education anywhere in the world and I was doing analysis of that back 
maybe 10 or so years ago. But it was almost all private money. It was not government funded. So it was parents prioritising the education of their children to get them to the best school, to the after-school preparation, get the best test. And I'm pretty sure you've probably heard the stories of, you know, on National Exam Day where, where people are asked to stay at home until after the kids have got to school so they can get to their exam, right? Like that's a pretty you know, high level, we want great outcomes from education. And I think that's part of the narrative across Asia anyway. Can I push to a whole other market just because this is something that's fascinating to me? Latin America. So we have clients that have worked and to size it, I'll say this, the energy that they'll put into, let's say, working with the state of Idaho, they could work with the entire country of Mexico or Colombia. And the adoption, I mean, it really lives and dies, at least in my again limited experience, with the ministries of education, right? That's where that is. Can you talk a little bit about the Latin American market at all? Only a tiny little bit because my experience sure. in Latin America is limited in terms of I have no on-the-ground sales experience there. But certainly over the last few years, I've been – supporting some government programs to help Australian tech companies access that market. And in fact, only a couple of days ago, we did a, um, a deep dive into the Latin American market with um, about 15 Victorian tech companies and some experts in Latin America. So the answer to you is that I think it's an incredibly large market, but the exact same characteristics I just explained about India, would, I, from my understanding, will be true about Latin America too, which is this is the total market, but what's the addressable market, right? Like who's actually going to be able to buy your product and things like are, are you delivering your product in English, Spanish or Portuguese and how do you do that at scale and how do you do that at, at the right price point? So Latin America is certainly uh, an emerging market. There's no doubt about that. I think if we pause for a minute and, and think about developed markets and emerging markets for a second, my, my view is emerging markets are driven by the consumer at the moment. And that consumer is about providing strategic advantage or competitive advantage for their child. So if your product can be sold B2C into emerging markets across Asia, Africa, or Latin America, I'm sure there's a huge market for you. Accessing government programs, I, I would you need to think deeply about the capacity of the government to actually make the payment too. Like I'm not suggesting in any, I'm not going to name any countries, but in, in part of your risk analysis and due, due diligence would be, well, I've just got this great contract with XYZ country. Um, what does that really mean? And back in the day, I, I did some work when I was working for a US software vendor in which we worked with a Asian country. Um, we had numerous conversations with central government, and you know they essentially wanted to buy something from us. But my, the CFO of that company was hesitant for us to sign and commit money to a project which was significant without some sort of guarantees about payment coming from you know risk analysis and metrics. So there are some things to think about, right, going into these emerging markets. But Latin America is certainly Wait a huge when Don't you start leave us banging here. Did it pan out or was, you don't have to say the country and don't have to say the company. I mean, was it, was it founded on a good reason or was it not needed? 
No, it was his 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 view was um, justified. So we did <laughs> a pilot project was funded, and that was actually funded by a development bank. And then the second phase of the project didn't proceed because the government essentially said, "Look, we we won't be able to make it work in this fiscal year." And then um, it just petered away with change of governments. Right. The reason I bring this back up is that you know for many the sales cycle is the local district leader, right? And it's almost a guarantee, at least in the American market, when you get a PO, it's going to be paid. Yep. Same now, in, same in. I, I think that's true in all, all developed markets, to be honest, Adam. I honestly think it is. Then, so great point. So in the developed markets, that's a very, almost, almost take it for granted, right? And now here you're talking about working with an international banking partner uh, with a major ministry of an education for a, a country, you know, not, not need to be named. And yeah, I mean, there's huge geopolitical risk in an education curricular sale. It's incredible. Yeah, and and that's why I think you'll see the biggest companies in those markets are B two C, right? Because they know that there's a you know one, their risk is limited, and two, they know the capacity of the customer to pay. And if they don't, it's a pretty easy thing to cut off an account. But if you've currently got your product deployed with I don't know, picking an example, thousands of schools in a country, and that central government's like, well, we're going to pay you in 180 days, and then we're going to extend another 180 days. Unless you're an established business, can afford to finance it yourself, you might have some challenges. No doubt. But isn't that the fun of business, though, as well? That's, <laughs> that's the excitement. That's what gets your palms sweaty and excited, right? I, I guess if you love ARNAP, sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk about COVID for a second, and not in the regular terms of, you know, how's COVID? I mean, I think everyone's had enough COVID conversation, but in the ed tech market, COVID has really driven innovation, right? I mean. What we couldn't, I could speak at least for the American market, what was often talked about, but was for limited places where district leadership maybe thought of innovative or state legislation required it, uh, is now commonplace, right? The, the idea that a student uh, will never miss a day because of the weather, right? There, there won't be a, a situation where a student will have to not be able to keep pace with their classmates. They can join, right, from anywhere, anytime. Uh, and that's brought incredible innovation to the ed tech market. How has COVID impacted ed tech on a just international scale as, as you see it? So I, I agree with your premise that um, the pandemic has highlighted the fact that education can be delivered online and virtually at a higher rate than it ever has been. But I, I do pause for a moment to remind people that a Zoom meeting is not online learning. It's yeah. very different, and yeah. we need to not um, we need not we need to not pretend that in 2020 because we flicked the switch and in six days or six weeks or six months every child and every um, university student across the world was now studying online and now we've fixed all of the problems. I don't think that that would be a fair summation from my vantage point, and especially in some countries where they didn't even flick the switch because they didn't have access to all of those tools. And I think as a microcosm, there would be parts of the US, much like parts of Australia, and I suspect in every other um, region around the world, that we saw a really big e-gap. We saw a device shortage. We saw a bandwidth shortage. We saw an um, access issue. And so we got a two-speed market for learners. Some kids who did incredibly well and thrived in it because it worked for them 
and the school that they were at or the university that they were at were really advanced in their digital transformation and did well. And then we saw the other end of the spectrum in which some kids didn't get anything because they, one, didn't have access, they didn't have the device, or um, their school wasn't as prepared. So I've been saying, um, quoting badly, Winston Churchill for a lot for the last year, which, you know, the great famous Winston Churchill um, quote is, never allow a crisis to go to waste, right? And the pandemic crisis has highlighted the digital readiness or lack thereof across systems. And I think it would be fair to say some systems and some institutions were caught napping. But going forward, I think it's created a great opportunity in all sorts of markets because I think the um, the insightful people got what I just said, and that is, you know, the, the, the leaders were already there thinking about it. They knew that they weren't quite ready. They knew they had to transform. And so I think that transformation will come. And there's no doubt in edtech where I, from my vantage point in Australia and what I see across Asia is there, there will be increased investment in, in both from traditional investors, you know, formal investors, whether they're vice um, um, venture capitalists or private equity firms, but there will also be increased investment from government, I think. I think that will be the re- outcome. I think to carry that idea just one step further because you're right yeah. on, there's become at least a greater interest to do things differently. And if I if I had to take anything as a positive from being locked with, uh, oh, I love my wife, but I'm here a lot, uh, <coughs> it's, it is that you are seeing legislators, agencies, bureaucrats say, you know, maybe, maybe we have to be prepared for the alternative. And to your to then to say, all right, it's not Zoom's not enough. Google Classroom's not enough. And that's not just to name two, but you know, all that kind of uh, all right, kids sitting on a screen. I mean, you're watching parents in, in tears almost. Right? I can't work. I can't. I can't manage with this. And so, there has come somewhat been a renaissance for at least a recognition of my goodness, what a teacher does every day. Right? I, I <laughs> could could not agree more. I could not agree more. Yeah. I think every parent in the world has should stop and go and buy a present for their classroom teacher of their child and give it to them when they return to the classroom to say thank you for the work that you do every day because I think they got an acute understanding of the challenge of being a teacher. And um, a, a little anecdotal story, I, I had a business selling edtech products into Singapore during the SARS epidemic of about, I think it was like 2005, 2006, I can't remember the exact time frame. And schools in that country were closed for six to nine months, right? They were closed and teachers were putting pieces of paper in letter boxes and picking them out the next day and marking them and doing this rotation. What happened at the end of that, or actually partway through, the Ministry of Education in Singapore announced what they call, I think it was like Master Plan 2, Master Plan 3, I don't remember exactly which number it was, which was to digitise classrooms. And what happened over the many government rollouts of Master Plan 1 through about Master Plan 5 or 6, I think they had, um, was about a five or six billion dollar investment into education, technology, infrastructure, services, training, the whole lot. And remember, that was only for three hundred schools or three hundred and fifty schools, because wow. that's the size of the Singapore market. So they were spending significant amount of money per school. So if you extrapolate that out to North America, and you think about America for a minute, the US, United States of America, and say, well, you've got roughly about a hundred thousand schools, and you did the same extrapolation. It becomes a scary number, but I'm pretty sure 
that all jurisdictions start will need to invest more money into their education technology within their school and university environment for sure. I mean, the idea that that amount of investment in such a small population, right, has and that's that country does get in top marks, you know, and so the investment has yield, um, and it wasn't probably immediate, you know. I, I obviously I'm not familiar with the data, but you tend to see these as lagging indicators. You look back and say, wow, this really worked. And that's my hope, at least as I see it, where there has become a kind of new receptivity to ideas that may be felt too foreign, but uh, could prove very valuable for educators and more importantly for learning. David, let me get you out of here on, the, on a few big predictions because I okay. think uh, I want to be able to at least, at least hold, you, hold you accountable here. All right. Give me three emerging trends as you see it in the global education space. Um, I think that you'll see a desire to focus teaching on immediate student need and you'll see tools that will emerge with artificial intelligence and machine learning supporting the learning, uh, the teaching practice and helping teachers pinpoint what you need or what I need or what the next child needs so that they can actually teach to the point of, um, of what they, they need. I think the next two are directly connected. One is that I think the postgraduate, what we would call in um, Australia the postgraduate market, so beyond that first bachelor's degree, I think that market will be changed forever and it's been coming this way but it will accelerate. I don't think you'll do two or three-year postgraduate qualifications, master's degrees. I think you'll be moving into a micro-credential um, environment. And the third piece there really is around the connection of the learner from formal education into the workforce. I think there will be an inherent an explicit desire for educators to ensure what they're teaching people is connected to the real world that this child and this learner and this adult is going to emerge into because lifelong learning is something we've been talking about for feels like forever. Absolutely. But I think right now we are really, really clear that the best way to improve people's economic circumstances is through learning in bite-sized chunks when they need it, how they need it, and at the point that they need it. Not next semester in September we start. It's like, wait a sec, why can't I do a three-week, five-week, 12-week course right now? Let's just do it. Let's get it started. It's unique that you're also experiencing a phenomena that we're experiencing in the States, which is micro-credentials and the recognition, without a doubt, a serious question about the value of the baccalaureate degree, although the data still is clear that there's incredible value there. But right alongside that, it's kind of workforce education, right? This idea that a student could get a credential, graduate high school, work in a manufacturing, work at an Amazon, right? Earn a really good wage, possibly get a good part of their college uh, credited. And then in the background, work and, and earn a baccalaureate degree or an AA or an AS and this kind of viability of these ready-to-work certificates. And you're seeing it in the market play out where traditional American blue-collar trades, right? Your plumbers, the AC, the mechanic, all the most of them still work in the field, much more tech-oriented, and all of them are in such high demand their wages, the, the, that industry is 
wide open. I mean, you could earn a very, very livable salary doing the jobs that were once kind of eschewed to the side. So it was so interesting. I think, I think that in Australia, my my personal view is that um, society decredited or, or, devalued it might be the right term devalued the import of people who worked in trades and exactly the same story right now if you're a tradesperson as a plumber or electrician or a carpenter or anything trying to get somebody to come and put a light switch in or to do those (laughs) sorts of things which you legally require it's really hard right and those those skills are in demand and as a society i think we devalued them for a long time but i don't think that's the case going forward i hope not anyway I totally agree. Last, last one for you. Okay. There's kind of a whole education ecosystem in Australia, most of, most of which I'll just say, say that I've had very limited interaction with them. I'm sure many of my listeners are the same way. Pick a major education company that from the Australian market that you think we'll be hearing about in the next three to five years. Like what, what is that? And I, I hate to put you on the spot. You can pick two if you want. But I think that there's, you know, give us something to do a little research on in the background, some, somebody to think about. I, I think that you'll, you'll hear about companies, and I'm going to name a, a bunch of them. But sure. You'll, you'll Be hear fair, about. I don't want to put you out there. No, no, that's fair. Um, so, firstly, Australian, Australian education companies that you'll know are. are Moodle, for example, is a great yeah. Australian tech company, and obviously one of one of the largest education providers in the world, Navitas, which is a private higher education provider, you know, global um, recognised business, multi billion dollar business. But there's a there's a wave of companies that are coming through that you'll hear about. Um, companies like Compass Education that are doing really big things globally around platform plays in K-12 schools or companies like Cluey, which are really using artificial intelligence machine learning to really support K-12 students in an enrichment market. And I think they're really tapping into the sort of desire that's happening right now. Um, there are other companies like Inquisitive that are doing incredible things. Education Horizons Group are doing amazing things. Education Perfect, who is actually not an Australian ethic company, they're a New Zealand company, but we'll take them as ours for the the point of this discussion. Education Perfect have had an incredible year. You know, they they have, in the last two or three years, their new CEO has really driven that business to an extent that you can't imagine. And, and I'm sure there, as soon as we finish this call, I go, oh, I should have spoken about that because there are some incredible companies doing some fantastic things because it's an important point, as I started with, if you want to make an impact on learners and you're an Australian company, you can't just be focused on domestic. You have to have that international reach. So they, they are definitely thinking about how they can support learners around the world and transform their economic circumstances using Australian education. David, if anyone wants to get in touch with you personally or to learn more about your work with EduGrowth, what's the best way to get in touch with you? You can you can get in contact with me via the EduGrowth website, edugrowth.org.au. You can also um, find my LinkedIn profile as well. David Linky is my name. I'm at EduGrowth. You can find me very easily. It's just LinkedIn, whatever the acronym is, forward slash David Linky. It's very easy to, I don't know what the beginning of that um, URL is, uh, but that's the best way to connect with me. Great. David, thank you so much for joining the show. This has been an incredible conversation. I appreciate you making the time. Adam, thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you for listening in on our fifth class with David Link. 
Traveling the globe with David highlights a global marketplace for innovation and unique opportunities for companies willing to tailor to the global marketplace. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have an idea for our next class, please email me directly at adam.geary at gmail.com. You've been listening to Capital Class, a venture with the Strategist Podcast Network. Learn more at strategistgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed.